and um, it's about two hours or so depending on traffic and uh, I need to get out of here before all of you get out of here so we don't have a traffic jam on the road and uh, I did exchange any honorarium for a double-double with grilled onions, fries, and a Coke <laughs> on the way to the airport, so I'm not about to miss out on that. <laughs> if you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, and though your outline says grace for the justified, I've decided to make a papal bull and uh, exchange that for a message on the wisdom of God from Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to read from verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. If I can just make a passing comment there, will you notice that the people who cause divisions and who destroy unity are those who teach other than biblical doctrines? It is not those who teach biblical doctrines who cause divisions. It is those who teach unbiblical doctrines who cause divisions. Does truth divide? Yes, it divides from error, and thank God for that. Verse 19, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, there's going to be a quiz on these names. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. This last chapter of Romans consists largely of friendly salutations, and Paul's commendations of certain people according to their labors of love for God and his people. And in verse 17, he warns the believers in Rome not to be drawn aside from the biblical doctrines which they had been taught by those who had corrupted the doctrines of Christ out of their worldly wisdom. And will you notice how they did this? It says, by smooth words and flattering speech. They make it sound so good. They make it sound so scholarly, and sometimes it's all this becomes a Gnosticism that you couldn't have known this, but we know it. And so to encourage them to remain constant in the truth, he assures them that all those who would distinguish truth by teaching error are Satan's instruments and will have the same end as their leader. Now let me make a distinction here, if I might, about error. All of us have it to some degree. 
because there is error, which we all have. If we knew what it was, we'd fix it, because we want to be as truthful as we can. There is serious error, which some of us may have, and there is fatal error, which none of us can have and still be a Christian. And there are certain doctrines that divide Christians from unchristians, non-Christians. Those are the fatal errors that we need to be sound on. I mean, for example, Calvin and Luther both believed that Mary was immaculately conceived. They believed that she was sinless and such things as that. Well, that's a serious error, but it's not a fatal error. And I'll re- I remember the first time a, a Romanist hit me with that, and he said, if you're such a Calvin fan, why don't you believe what he believed, that Mary was immaculately conceived and sinless? Well, I'd never heard that before, so I did what I did whenever I came up against something like that. I called Dr. Gerstner. And I said, Dr. Gerstner, is this true? He says, yes, sadly it is. And I says, well, what do we do about this problem? He says, what problem would that be? And I says, that Calvin and Luther, I thought he was playing with me, and I was already frustrated, that Calvin and Luther believed that Mary was perfect and immaculately conceived. He says, how is it that two fallible men are wrong on something, and that's the problem? Yeah, I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> now notice verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. In other words, God will see to it that his divine truth will always be victorious wherever he wants it to be. Remember Isaiah saying, My word shall never return to me void without accomplishing that for which I sent it. And there's another one of God's always and never statements. And if he said it, God said it. That settles it. We can eliminate that middle irrelevant part. And then Paul has a short prayer for the people beginning in verse 24. Since they were beginning to turn their backs on sound doctrine, he asked that God, who had brought them to the knowledge of the truth, would confirm it in them, since it was the gospel of his dear son Jesus Christ, since it was a mystery that had been kept secret since the world began, but according to divine promise had now been revealed so that people might be obedient to it. I think sometimes we ought to spend a great amount of time in thanking God that things we think we understand so clearly have been mysteries for thousands of years. We are so blessed to have the knowledge that we have of the plan of salvation, of how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament, of how they work together, of the continuity of God's plan of redemption, of the covenant of grace from Adam on, and things that we take for granted and simply say, well, of course. But there are angels who couldn't say, of course, to those things. And there are centuries of people who couldn't say, of course, to those things. And God has blessed us with the knowledge of them. And we ought to be very, very grateful for that. Well, then Paul concludes his prayer with a doxology to God. He states that God is powerful to establish you. And will you note how he accomplishes that? Through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, which reveals mysteries unknown before, but whose end is obedience. Faith without works is dead. The works add nothing to the faith. They are simply evidence of it. But faith without works is dead. You're not saved by the works, but you're not saved without the works. But the works give evidence that the faith is genuine. Now, the causes of this gospel bringing glory to God are two. One is the power of God, and the other is the wisdom of God. We don't really need to look at the power of God at this point, but I do want us to look at the wisdom of God. But Scripture often puts those two together in a coupling. 
And while we may feel much security and much stability because of the power of God, the stability of our souls depends every bit as much on the wisdom of God. And that is how Paul ends his doxology with a celebration of the wisdom of God. To God alone wise or who alone is wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And in the Gospels, Christ had stated that only God was good in Matthew 19. And here Paul declares that only God is wise. As all created beings, even angels who dwell in His presence, are unclean by comparison, and the Scripture tells us that, that even the angels who dwell in His presence compared to God are impure. And that's a kind of an interesting statement because if they weren't pure, they couldn't dwell in His sight. And yet, compared to God, the pure angels are impure. Well, they're unclean by comparison, so we'd have to say also that all creatures, all beings, are fools by comparison to the wisdom of God. So much so that Paul tells us in Corinthians that the wisdom of God, excuse me, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Now, it's hard to rephrase that without taking the chance of sounding irreverent, but we would say it this way if we were going to say it in a crass way, that on God's worst day, God doesn't have any worse days. I remember sitting in an ordination exam, and a young man said that he thought the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' best sermon. And I asked him which one was his worst. Well, on God's foolish day, which He doesn't have, He would still be wiser than any human being on His wisest day. Proverbs even uses the term wisdom as a synonym for God. In the literal Greek, this last verse would read this way, To the alone wise God, through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory forever. Christ is the wisdom of God revealed to us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, He became to us wisdom from God, and God is glorified through Christ. Now, wisdom is when we will the right thing, when we act for the right reason, and when we do both because we have accurately assessed things according to the best possible information. Now, wisdom is different from knowledge. It is distinct in this way. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. The Puritan Samuel Craddock wrote a treatise called Knowledge and Practice, or knowing what to do and then putting it into use. Paul distinguishes these two in Romans 11.33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And here... Paul waxes eloquent about the two things that are unique to God. God alone has perfect knowledge of all things. And God has the perfect wisdom as to what to do regarding those things. Men may have knowledge without wisdom, but they can't have wisdom without knowledge. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God works all things after the counsel of His own will. And whatever God declares, He consults no one but Himself, because no one knows more than He does, and no one has more wisdom than He does, since God alone is wise. And if God alone is wise, then nobody else really has any wisdom at all. 
Any wisdom we have then will come as God grants it to us through the sanctification process and a diligent study of his word. The ancient philosopher Pythagoras, out of respect for God's perfect wisdom, would only allow himself to be called a lover of wisdom, but not a sophister or a wise man. Now I want us to look at this wisdom of God and that he alone is wise. That again, this wisdom is part of his very nature. We gain wisdom through maturing, through aging, through experiencing life, through studying, through thinking and meditation. But God never gains any wisdom because that would violate his immutable nature. However wise God is, he's always been that wise and he'll always be that wise. He'll never be more wise or less wise than he was or is. He's unchanging in his wisdom, so he is infinitely and eternally wise. This is why the attributes of God correctly understood from the Bible are a death blow to process theology and open theism. And if you really want a good book to deal with open theism, read again Edward's book, The Freedom of the Will, because the Anglican Daniel Whitby was advocating open theism 300 years ago, and Edwards blew it out of the water once and for all. It's just that we're so ignorant of history that we don't go back and let the masters deal with these things. Isn't it interesting how much of our prayer we could save for praise if we realize that God does not gain any information from our prayers? I mean, I have heard some of the most absurd things out of the mouths of people who should know better. Um, Lord, we just want to let you know that Annie so-and-so is in the hospital. Let you know? You may not know this, but Joe so-and-so is out of a job. You may not know. Who are they talking to? And all of that is acting as if God didn't know what was going on in his universe. He states clearly that he needs no counsel from anyone. In Romans 11.34, there's the rhetorical question, who has been his counselor? He dressed Job down severely when Job questioned God's wisdom in appointing his severe providence. Whatever wisdom we have is mainly comes from our mistakes, Right? But God never learns from making mistakes because He doesn't make any mistakes. Whatever wisdom we have is because someone has communicated that to us or we've learned from their example or our own failures. But if someone has to acquire wisdom from someone else, they certainly can't be said to be inherently wise. But God gains information from no one. In fact, all wisdom flows from Him. He is perfectly wise because he has all the knowledge there is to have about everything there is. And since he has existed eternally, he has eternal knowledge, which is the same as to have infinite knowledge. Having an infinite eternal knowledge, he has a perfect knowledge. And since God is perfectly holy, he has an infinitely perfect wisdom about what to do with that infinite knowledge. God is infallibly wise. He cannot err in judgment because He alone sets the standard for what is best since He's perfectly pure. 
God's holiness keeps him from ever making a wrong decision. His knowledge keeps him from ever making an uninformed decision. And his wisdom keeps him from ever making a bad decision. And since God sees the end from the beginning, and he knows all possibilities in advance, whatever he choices he chooses to make are therefore the best choices for whatever comes to pass. Because he has examined every possible set of consequences does whatever is best suited to his own glory and therefore makes the best possible choice. So again, no matter whether you say God ordains everything that comes to pass or whether all you're willing to allow is that God allows things to come to pass, the best, the result is the same. It's the best possible thing that could happen because it was either ordained or allowed by an infinitely wise, knowledgeable, eternal, perfectly holy God. I doubt there's anyone here who's in the allow category, but I'll allow for the possibility. Now, this has to be tempered with the fact that God's choices always have God's glory as their end. So God always chooses what is in accordance with His own will. Say that in the Catechism. God can do all His holy will. And in determining what will most glorify Him, exalt His nature, and bring Him the most honor. Now, here is where we are tempted to bring experience in and fight against this. How could the death of my son glorify God? I don't know. But I do know that the death of his own son glorified him. But really, that's the difference between God and us. And that's where trust and faith comes so much in. God is perpetually wise. As we human beings age, we first gain wisdom, and then we lose it. As we get older and older and older, we start off silly, then we get wise, and we end up silly. We start off drooling on ourselves, we get older and we end up drooling on ourselves. I mean, it's just like God has a sense of humor playing itself out in the aging process. We start off dependent, and we end up totally dependent. You know, the amazing thing is, is we ever thought we had control? Isn't that the thing? We talk about having to give up control. When did we ever have it? Anybody with kids never had control. But since God is eternal and will never decay, He never ages, His mind is never lost, and it's never gone. And as it is an infinite wisdom, it can never be added unto or diminished by anything. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, although mine would go in the air, but how many times have we felt like God didn't really know what was best for us? All that means is is that God is not me-centered. God is God-centered because God will always do what is best for Him, and yet as one of His children, we reap eternal benefits from that. God could do what was best for us and not glorify Himself in that way, but God can never do what is best for God and we not benefit from it. Because as His children, when God glorifies Himself, we reap immeasurable benefits. In fact, God is so wise that His wisdom is said to be incomprehensible. Romans 11.33, His judgments are unsearchable, His ways past finding out. In other words, only God understands God totally. In many ways, this is nothing more than an advertisement for the Word of God. 
Because the scripture often ascribes wisdom to God. Daniel 2.20, wisdom and might are his, wisdom to contrive and power to effect. And for this reason, counsel is ascribed to God. In Job 12, he has counsel and understanding. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a counselor, Christian or otherwise, and not everybody who puts out a shingle as a Christian counselor is a biblical counselor or a scriptural counselor. I remember 30 years ago I went to a counselor and right in the middle of a session he got on the phone and started yelling at his mother. I felt very insecure at that point. He said, I hate my mother. I wish I could, she'd die. Why am I here? What would it be if your counselor said, you know, I can sit here and listen, but I haven't got a clue what it's like to go through what you're going through. Or... I, I do remember this as a pastor trying to do some pastoral counseling. And I had been told the best thing you can do is look like you're paying attention by squinting and then every now and then go, hmm. And they said, that's all it takes. Because most people came in, and you pastors know this, most people who come into you for counseling come in for not for advice, they come for permission. For the most part, they've already determined what they want to do and they just want you to okay it. And a woman came in one time and talked to me for a half an hour and she learned how to talk because she always breathed halfway through the sentence. That way she could blow right through the periods and not give me a chance to get in. And after 30 minutes of straight talking, she got up and said, thank you, I feel so much better now. And I hadn't said a word. I didn't know what to tell her, so I just squinted and said, hmm, a lot. But God has counsel and understanding, or as Isaiah 46 says, He's great in counsel, and that is the reason He's called the mighty counselor. Now, wouldn't you agree that the best counselor is the one with perfect knowledge and infinite wisdom? Counsel, then, is what should be given after laborious deliberation and reasoning about things, anticipating all the objections about the matter in dispute or the matter in question. But God is always completely knowledgeable and focused as to what course He should take on any given matter. He does nothing but with the fullest reason, the fullest understanding, with the utmost prudence and the most glorious ends after weighing every foreseen circumstance. And when I use that term foreseen, you realize that with God there are no unforeseen circumstances. I mean, if He is the Alpha and Omega... Therefore, he knows everything from the end to the beginning and everything in between. And since God has revealed himself in his word, which cannot err, because the God who inspired it cannot err, and since God is infinitely wise, then this word, which he inspired men to write, contains perfect wisdom and counsel for our souls. This is exactly what David had in mind when he composed Psalm 19. He speaks it of it as the Word of God, and he refers to it under several different synonyms. He calls it God's law. He calls it God's testimony. He calls it God's statutes, His commandments, His fear, and His judgments. Let me read it for you. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now, by the time you reach the end of that paragraph, that last statement seems rather obvious, doesn't it? I mean, if God's Word is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and righteous, if it's better than gold and sweeter than honey, isn't it obviously in our best interest to consult it and then obey it? I mean, why would we do something other than that with all of this there for us? Now, because God has perfect wisdom, He governs the world perfectly. Therefore, the issue is not, and it actually never was, again, whether we liked something that God did, whether we understood something that God did, whether we appreciated it, but whether or not God felt it best that that particular thing should happen. I was working on a sermon last night by John Cotton, and it was the last sermon he preached in Boston, England, before he came to Boston, America, and it was called The Danger of Desertion, and he was giving all the things that were true of England, and he says, there is a danger of God's deserting England. And the problem was that everything he was saying about England is true about America today. He says, why should God not leave it? We say, but how was good there? Well, it is interesting that when England, the Church of England and Parliament, kicked out over 2,000 ministers, the Puritans, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, it was probably the greatest missionary movement the church has ever seen. Because hundreds of them went to the continent, hundreds of them went to South Africa, hundreds of them went to South America, many of them came to America and started America, and at least for a period of time, we had a wonderfully religious society here in America. So when the church is persecuted, she just sends out missionaries. But God knew what he was doing. Because if the infinitely wise, eternally wise, perpetually wise, and perfectly wise God feels that it's something best should happen, then we should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is best for that thing to happen. And any disagreement we have with God or any lack of understanding we have over an act of God's providence is completely owing to our being finite and trying to bring the infinite down to our level of understanding. But finite creatures will never fully understand the infinite. We can understand some, but not all, but we don't understand anywhere near what we could understand. Because we tend to think mainly in terms of ourselves and not in terms of God. Let me just give one example of how wise God is in something we wouldn't commonly look at to see His wisdom. God ordained sin. Say, how do we know that? Because it happened. Lamentations 3 tells us that what is there that happens that I have not ordained it. God has ordained everything that comes to pass. And sin has come to pass, so we know that God ordained that sin come to pass without God being the authors of sin. Now, how was God wise in ordaining sin, which is unquestionably evil? Well, it was for a fuller revelation of His nature to man. 
I mean, if God had not ordained evil, we would only know God in His power as a Creator. But because God ordained sin, we know God in His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His compassion and His tenderness to us as sinners. And so for a full revelation of God's nature, He ordained sin. We would never have known the depths of it. And in many ways, God saving someone is a greater act than His creating the world. I mean, we, we would have known His power, of course. God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no committee meeting. The particles didn't get together and say, do you guys want to do this today or not? God said, let there be light, and there was light. But when God creates life in the heart of a spiritually dead sinner, there's opposition. There's something to be overcome. When God created the universe out of nothing as it was, there was no opposition at all. But when God saves someone, there's the opposition of a sinful nature to be overcome. There's the opposition of the powers of darkness to be overcome. It's nothing for God to overcome them. And so there's more of the power of God seen in the conversion of a sinner than there was in the creation of the world. Actually, when Paul wants to talk about the power of God, he takes us to Romans 9 and he says this, What if God, wanting to make His wrath, to show His wrath, and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory." When God wants to show His power, He'll do it, He'll demonstrate it when He destroys the wicked in hell. That's how we'll see His power. We didn't get to see the creation of the world. We didn't get to see how God changed our hearts from being haters of God to lovers of God, but God will show us His power when He punishes His wicked enemies in hell. And He will also show you and I His love when we see what we have been saved from. You will have a greater appreciation than ever when you see what could have been you but for the sovereign electing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God shows His wisdom in bringing good out of evil. The greatest injustice the world has ever known was the crucifixion of Christ. And God brought good out of that salvation. And we could all quote again, Romans 8.28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. So God ordained sin that He might communicate Himself fully and completely to all of His creation, and that was wisest for Him to do. So to draw good out of those things which in their very nature are contrary to good is not only infinite wisdom, but infinite power. I think the wisdom of God is seen most in our redemption. His wisdom in creation. I was just absolutely amazed this morning walking out to the street. One, that I made it. And two, all that the beauty of nature that was there along the way. It ravishes our eyes, but His wisdom in redemption astonishes our minds. And that wisdom was hidden until God compacted it and revealed it in Jesus Christ. You know, when we draw things out like a rubber band, we draw them out, we make them weaker and thinner, but when we compact them, we make them stronger. 
And God saw fit that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge should be. Now, that is mind-boggling to me. That God took all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and put them, compacted them into Jesus Christ. In Scripture, the wisdom of God is referred to in many ways. It expresses its greatness. It's called manifold wisdom. It is called abundant wisdom. We can see the wisdom of God in redemption in manifesting two contrary affections at the same time and in the same act. And that is God's, on the cross, God shows the greatest hatred for sin at the same time showing His greatest love for a sinner. And all of that in what He did to Christ on the cross. And we see His wisdom in using the best method to procure our obedience and to give us comfort. He gives us what we need to stand before Him. And then He rewards us for having it. And in this glorious plan of salvation, God draws us to Himself. He secures our salvation. He engages us to duty. He makes us happy. And He motivates us to love Him in return. And all of that was put into place by the wisdom of God. To distrust God's providence then is to denounce His wisdom and put ourselves above Him as if we knew more than an infinitely wise God. Now, what should that mean for us? Well, first of all, if God can be patient with His wisdom, we should be also. And if God sees it best for us to be in our present condition, then let us thank Him for it. Because He has determined that it is best for Him and best for us that we be exactly where we are. Now, we can get fatalistic and say, well, I'm out of a job. And God thinks it's best I'm out of a job, so I guess He wants me on welfare. No, God wants you to seek a job because he who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. God never asks us to disobey one command in order that we might obey another command. But whatever position God has got us in right this moment is the one that he thinks is best for us. And so we should thank him for it. And if God chooses contrary to our wills, then what we need to do is change our will to match his exactly what Christ prayed for. Here's what I want, but no matter what, not my will, God, but yours. And if God sees fit to afflict us, then it is a choice made out of infinite wisdom. And it's probably the same situation as David is. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Because then I learned obedience. That's what Hebrews tells us about Jesus. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And then let us learn to voice the same doxology as did the Apostle. To the only wise God, be glory through Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, may we submit our wills to the divine will. May we submit our finite, derived wisdom to thy infinite, perfect wisdom. May we realize that Father knows best. And may we be grateful for a God who does and always does what is best regardless of the approval ratings of His people. Teach us all these things for Jesus' sake and our good. We ask it in Thy blessed name. Amen. Thank you. I've got a plane and a...